Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Coming up, pharmacies are gearing up to give you your second dose of AZ. All parties support a motion against holding a pandemic election. My goodness, that's brilliant. Students going to have another tough summer finding a job this year. Are you looking for a different home with more space? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I want everybody to know Kurt is doing all of these without a shirt on. Never once have you ever had a shirt on when you're doing the intro. (laughs) No, you're on the radio. Go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson. He's shirtless. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The House of Commons voted yesterday not to have a federal election during the global pandemic. Whoa, way to have your finger on the pulse of the nation. Sit down. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Put on a shirt. We got a shirt. I don't think he's had a. I don't think he's had a shirt on for the whole pandemic. Come to think about it. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve. Okay, so what? I haven't either. Get out of here. Uh, it's. Uh, that's why I don't want to go back to work. I don't have to dress. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve eleven. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Week number sixty two. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website Scott Thompson at nine hundred CHML dot com. And the phone lines are always open at nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred on your cell. Another jam packed show uh, coming up. Going to give you uh, an update on where we are with the AstraZeneca. Let's bring in Brianna Carnegie right here and has the latest. Ontario's health officials confirm a man in his 40s developed vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, also known as VIT, after receiving his first dose of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine at the end of April. He died a few weeks later. While the investigation is ongoing and a final cause of death has yet to be officially determined, it has been confirmed that the individual did have VIT at the time of his death. Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Barbara Yaffe understands individuals who received their first AZ dose may have concerns. She encourages them to reach out to their health care provider. I want to take this opportunity to reiterate that those who received AstraZeneca vaccine should feel very confident in their decision. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, there you have it. Uh, we certainly heard of cases now, Ontario, reporting its uh, first death as a result, or the person that died, don't know if it's a result of, but the person that died uh, obviously had uh, this condition as a re- uh, linked to AstraZeneca. Uh, that being said, uh, the government has uh, suspended first doses of AstraZeneca, but everybody who got the first already uh, is uh, being invited now, especially during that first week, uh, I think it's March 10th and, and that first week in there uh, to get their second doses. Uh, obviously, what we're hearing from, um, and this was coming out of NASI earlier on and why I guess a lot of provinces paused uh, AstraZeneca, was that they wanted to wait and hear uh, in regard to reaction on the second dose. And what we're finding out is that the second dose reaction is far different uh, and far less than what it is the first time out. So uh, some pharmacies, again, we don't have a lot of supply of AstraZeneca. This was stuff, still the stuff that was put on the shelf during the pause, from what I understand. But let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, and is with us now. Justin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So let's uh, let's add some clarity here, Justin. So as far as setting people up uh, who got that first dose in uh, March with their second in, of AstraZeneca uh, now coming in, what is the pharmacy participation in that? And uh, from what I understand, not all pharmacies will be participating the way they were uh, with the first dose. That's right. We've just uh, undertaken uh, a logistically complex uh, process to go out on Friday and Saturday of the long weekend uh, to all the pharmacies that had remaining doses that were on pause and quarantine in their fridges of AstraZeneca vaccine that's set to expire on Monday, May 31st. So outside of the three regions, we were able to collect all of that. And then uh, Sunday till today, they were undertaking a, uh, with public health, a, a QA process whereby they just double check and validate the temperature logs, make sure there's no uh, spoilage in those uh, vials. And then uh, we're in the midst right now of the third part of that rollout, which is redistribution to about half the pharmacies. There's about 170 pharmacies, and they're listed on the government website now, um, that will be participating with these 30,000 doses. And we're about uh, halfway through the reallocation in Toronto, Kingston, and Windsor. So some stores will have it now, some will have it later today and into tomorrow. And how do you decide, Justin, where this goes? Does it go based on population? Is it hotspots? Is there any sort of priority with getting that second dose of AZ? Well, there is based on the eligibility of who received it uh, from March 10th to March 19th. So it's a cohort of about 90,000 people. So as you can see, we've got about a third supply uh, for this early second dose. And I think it's important to emphasize that if you can't get an appointment uh, for this early second dose at the 10 and 11 week mark, um, rest assured there's more supply coming. There's 254,000 in the government stockpile that will be released over the next couple of weeks. And we'll make sure that we get the regularly scheduled second dose interval uh, done in time. Now, in terms of proportion, what we looked at was the number of people that went to those 325 stores in March and those during that nine-day period and uh, just uh, basically allocated based on uh, the the volume that we saw. Um, so the idea would be to try to match it as best as possible. There's about uh, 110 stores out of Toronto, 27 in um in uh, Kingston and about 30 in Windsor. So that's how we, we broke it down. And and if we remember back to the beginning, that's how you started all of this uh, way back when. Uh, you're talking about, uh, and I, I think from reports that I'd heard from you earlier, we're sitting about 30,000, 31,000 doses that were paused. Is that accurate, that you will redistribute? That's right, yeah. So stores are getting it today and tomorrow. Some received... Uh, vaccine yesterday, so it's a a rolling uh, reallocation distribution. Uh, So we've got 30,000 to do in a runway of about five uh, to four days. So this is uh, a monumental task, Uh, a lot of administrative uh, functions and activities from the pharmacist. Uh, We're getting inundated hundreds, if not thousands of calls uh, to these pharmacies now that they're up on the government website. Um, So the appetite's there to get the second dose, um, Mm. which is good, uh, but of course we have limited supply. So some people will have to wait until their regularly scheduled appointment. And how many uh, Ontarians were vaccinated with the first dose of AstraZeneca? So in other words, how much do we need for the second? We have approximately 900,000 people that received a first dose of AstraZeneca in the province of Ontario. So we now are starting the second dose regimen with only 30,000. It's 45,000 in the province. Some of that's in primary care and uh, public health units. 
-hmm. And then uh, we have 254,000 sitting in a provincial depot ready to distribute out to the community. So that still leaves a significant gap, uh, you know, just under 700,000 that we need uh, procurement from the federal government to ensure that the province has enough to meet that uh, demand for what is the bulk of people coming due for their second dose between mid-June to the end of August. So it is staggered and there is time uh, to be able to get that supply in, but uh, that will be the, the challenge. That gap is pretty significant. Where will that, I don't know if you know this, Justin, or not, uh, where will that AstraZeneca that's needed to vaccinate those other, the rest of that 900,000, where will they, where will that come from? Because we understand, obviously, the stuff that's coming out of India, they need it desperately. They're in dire need, so they've stopped exporting. So where does that, uh, where does that AZ come from? So the federal government's looking at a number of different countries, which either have unused batches of AstraZeneca, or in the case of the U.S., uh, never got uh, an application for approval, and they had 60 million doses sitting in a, in a warehouse, uh, or several warehouses. So much of that has been allocated to India, but there still is some left over. So there are options, um, and they're working with AstraZeneca and a number of countries through the COVAX system to get that uh, distribution into uh, Canada. The other component that might help address this is the research and data is strongly suggesting uh, the safety and efficacy of mixing doses. And we are expecting NACI to look at this and potentially update their guidelines in the first week of March, or sorry, June, which would allow for the option and flexibility in getting an mRNA vaccine as your second dose as opposed to uh, AstraZeneca. Um, I, and I don't want to confuse anybody here, Justin, but uh, from what I understand, the latest information from NASI is they don't recommend mixing the doses. Is that accurate? Well, I think they're still waiting on a number of studies, um, and there has been signals that this is uh, you know, certainly something that can work and work well. Um, and there's been some uh, also reports about an increase in mild side effects, Um things like uh, headaches and, and being nauseous and, and so forth. So uh, I think they're still combing through all of the data before they make a final recommendation. And what about uh, far, uh, Pfizer and Moderna in pharmacies? Obviously, we know the logistics around the cold storage and such. We understand that's relaxed a bit. Um, so are, will we see more and more of the Moderna and Pfizer's going into pharmacies? That is uh, certainly our hope. We have 1,600 pharmacies as of yesterday, that are offering either Moderna or Pfizer across all regions in the province. Uh, Our expectation is to ramp up to about 2,500 stores by the first week of June. Right now, we're seeing shipments on a weekly basis, and per pharmacy, they get about 150 doses, um, which obviously doesn't last long. Uh, I visited uh, many of them that are going through 150 doses in 24 hours, so the demand for the mRNA is extremely high. Uh, and great throughput, but uh, we'll certainly be looking for more supply to meet that demand. And of course, Moderna continues to have supply uh, interruptions, so that has been delayed, um, but we are seeing more predictable supply of Pfizer. Uh, We obviously got the news out today that uh, a person had passed away last month uh, with COVID, first death in Ontario. Are you you concerned, or sorry, as a result of the vaccine or that it had the vaccine, uh, your thoughts on uh, this creating more hesitancy? Do you think that will? Do you think there'll be a, a large uptake for that second dose of AstraZeneca? 
Yeah, I mean, first, uh, tremendously tragic news um, and uh, our condolences to the family. Um, you know, we, we never um, certainly, uh, you know, understate that. I think we've been transparent um, from the beginning about the risks and benefits of, of all vaccines and medications. Um, all of that to say that the, the one in 60,000 instances of VITT, while certainly concerning and severe, uh, still represent a very small risk, well below 1%. Um, but this is one of the reasons why the ministry decided and, and the chief medical officer, David Williams, decided to pause the first dose because the second dose, as we've seen from the UK, has an instance of uh, one out of 600,000, so a much less um, you know, much less risk in terms of uh, developing blood clots uh, and side effects. So uh, I think this strategy makes sense in terms of earmarking the remaining doses and new batches for second dose appointments. We still maintain this is a safe and effective vaccine. Um, and, uh, and vaccine hesitancy will be an issue. We will definitely be addressing that and it will be based on informed consent. Lots of information shared with uh, their healthcare providers to be comfortable with the decision. Um, and uh, that'll be, you know, part of the process in terms of uh, giving confidence that this is uh, the right choice that people are making. And there is some buyer's remorse, um, but I can tell you that I think people, when they look at the data, uh, understand the benefits of doing this, uh, are, are making good choices. And thus far, we're seeing a lot of demand for the second dose, although it's still early days. So where we are now in this, Justin, what is the biggest challenge for pharmacies at this point? I think it's been a common theme from the launch in, in March, which is supply. You know, when I think about some of the frustrations that we're seeing with people trying to book appointments and yeah. uh, be on wait lists, uh, find a pharmacy that's offering the early second dose for AstraZeneca, it's a byproduct of not having enough. Um, and if we had more supply, we would be able to book people and uh, we wouldn't have to utilize wait lists and, and manage expectations. The other piece that uh, has been a huge challenge and in, in, uh, seeing it this week more so than, than before, which is the abuse of uh, healthcare professionals. Um, lots of people coming in angry, blaming pharmacists and physicians mm. and nurses for what is outside of their control from a supply standpoint. And we call it pandemic rage, but it, it really is taking a toll on the frontline um, burnout's an issue, mental health. The the pace that uh, healthcare workers are operating at is, uh, you know, as we know, um, continues to be unprecedented. Um, and when you've got to deal with uh, people yelling and, um, you know, blaming you for, for policy decisions and for supply uh, that is outside of your control, it's, it's not easy to manage that. Yeah, it's uh, the fatigue, COVID snap, I call it, uh, and we are certainly seeing that in all aspects of this. And something to remember, uh, when you enter into your local pharmacy, they're there to help you, and they can only provide you with what they are provided. And something to remember with all healthcare workers and everyone who's uh, on the front line, uh, please, we're, we're all at the end of our ropes here. Uh, let's not take it out on the messenger. Uh, Justin, uh, thanks so much for the time. Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association. Be well, Justin. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. <laughs> let's bring in... Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. All parties supporting a motion in the House of Commons against holding a pandemic election. 
This is brilliant politics. Uh, again, showing politicians that have their finger on the pulse of the nation. Why did this come up now? <laughs> well, voting and holding an election now. So guess how many weeks are left in Parliament? About five. So that's great. Mm-hmm. We already knew there wouldn't be an election now. Um, and it gives them some wiggle room for one in the fall. I think the election, their, the motion goes on beyond that. I mean, but some circumstance will be manufactured. Nobody can be seen to be cheering for it. But, Scott, it's a crock, a crock. Great big C could spin a great yarn about the nonsense <laughs> that is that motion. Why did this come out now? Because we remember there was a window way, uh, way back when, I think between the first and second wave, where, when the Prime Minister uh, had a throne speech and that was supposed to start all this, and then all of a sudden things went south and, and that window closed quite quickly. So why not have something like this way back when it was obvious we were going to be in this for a while? And politicians are known for their timeliness. How yeah. often? Rarely, right? Like. I mean, it's as you have well alluded, um, what was Al Gore's film about climate change, The Inconvenient Truth? Well, this is a convenient moment of truth. Hey, let me state the obvious. Where's Captain Obvious? We're not going to have an election this summer, at least the beginning of the summer. We're all for that. Hooray. I mean, it's it's just nonsensical. Maybe they're they're worried that Canadians are more anxious about or as anxious about this as they are everything else. I think most people in the country had concluded, including the political leaders that couldn't go to the polls right now, um, would make no sense for anyone and would have uncertain political outcomes, which none of the parties want. Um, Is the public following this? Is is the public aware why we're even talking about an election? Is the public aware that uh, some are wanting one, some are not? I had only heard about it, to be honest, uh, because another colleague of yours had mentioned it to me yesterday. Uh, I, I try to be fairly aware of this stuff. I, I think the public is wholly uninterested uh, in this, and they remain, as you and I often talk, interested in the reopening plans of the respective provinces and whether kids are going back to school, not whether a bunch of uh, adult politicians are deciding to have or not have an election uh, before um, before summer comes. The public has to be pretty aware, though, that after coming out of someone like this, someone's going to want to feel the love. Someone's going to want to take that gratitude and 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 uh, manufacture something out of it, turn it into something. Is, is the public aware that there's political posturing going now on now? The the fact that we're even talking about it. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, we, we've seen, look, every time Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau hit a microphone these days, there's posturing uh, focused on each other because each provides a convenient foil, right? Uh, so every time Doug Ford hits the microphone after whatever his announcements are, you get the... Uh, the the, uh, the the ringing criticism of borders and Justin Trudeau will go back with well I keep answering his letters and uh, on all of this and I've already given clear direction so there's the positioning is there um, and you you do see in both cases again let's just focus on those two because where we're talking uh, today in Ontario um, that uh, they're they're also doing the classic let's lower the ex keep the expectation so low that 
uh, all of a sudden we can surpass them. Uh, that's always good politics if it works out. In Mr. Ford's case, it's been more necessitated because he's had some well-defined troubles, as we know, managing the pandemic, or he's been criticized for all of that. Mr. Trudeau doesn't hurt him at all. Um, so, you know, there's so much politicking going on right now, Scott. It, it, there are signs that, you know, Ontario election, as we know, is a year, a year away. And I suspect, barring a fourth wave, that Canada will be in a federal election come late August or early September with a vote sometime in October. Is that the sweet spot for the prime minister, the fall? I think so. He wants to capitalize on the euphoria, right, of um, of, of some normal. So that needs to be schools going back seamlessly, hopefully. Uh, people going to, you know, see the Ticats play. Uh, people being able to go uh, a little further down the road from you to the ACC and watch some hockey in person and see their kids get back in their sports programs. I think that's what he is playing for because that allows a window too before the hard work of the further hard work of saying all right we can't keep spending all this money happens so if you're justin trudeau that's the window you probably want uh the longer this goes on the harder it is for him probably i mean you know at some point people are going to look back and say okay we got through this that's great, but now we got to look further ahead, and we're going to have to make choices about what we spend money on. We just can't keep going this way. Uh, you know, SUS, the Canada Emergency Way Subsidy, um, CERB, all these things, they're going to end, right? And they've kept, rightly, helped people out through all of this, but the that train of money, I'm not calling it a gravy train, because that would be cruel. I don't want to be cruel. It hasn't been a gravy train. It's been a train that's been helpful here uh, to people. It's going to end, and somebody's got to end it and turn it off, and Trudeau's going to have to do that uh, if he's still the prime minister sooner rather than later. Uh, I read something uh, very recently that um, uh, O'Toole being dragged down by Ford and Kenny. Uh, What about provincial interference here? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the O'Toole is an Ontario Ontario federal conservative. He certainly has close ties with Doug Ford in Ontario. Ontario, you have this unique history, as you know, of having one government in Ottawa and one government in uh, Toronto of different jersey colors. You're red-blue or blue-red, pick your poison. Uh, And Doug Ford has had his struggles. And Trudeau is going to try very hard, as he did with with Andrew Scheer last time, to tie... um, to tie O'Toole to uh, to Ford, and in Alberta, I mean, Jason Kenney was the first heavyweight politician to endorse Aaron O'Toole. I mean, the threat for the Conservatives in Alberta doesn't remain or uh, isn't the Liberals; it's the so-called Maverick Party. And if O'Toole loses a few par- seats to the Maverick Party that weren't going to go Liberal, but they were going to go in his column. He has challenges, you know, getting to a place where he can form at least a minority government. 
recently, uh, a tweet from O'Toole coming back from a run, and he's got a pop in his hand that his wife had brought him, and uh, immediately the Liberals jumped on it, you know, sort of painting it like uh, his wife was chasing him down the driveway in her June Cleaver dress and apron with a beer in his in her hand. Uh, how how do how do the conservatives stop the Liberals from continually painting their narrative like this? Well, but that was just a ridiculous, right? Not the photo op, the reaction to it. I mean, you know, you you you, you saw the hidden agenda boogeyman coming out. Aaron O'Toole is going to drag Canadian women back to the 1950s. Patriarchy is alive. What a load of malarkey. I think a greater statement about the need for people to get out of lockdown, perhaps choose a beverage of their choice, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, to relax. It was crazy. Too much people have too much time on their hand to 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 reflect on this silliness. And then, of course, O'Toole put out another tweet the next day of him bringing his wife a rosé in reaction to it. So maybe it demonstrated he had a sense of humor, and maybe, as you know, clickbaits he got some followers out of. But but the reaction was ridiculous, and even strong feminists than I know thought it was way over the top. And it maybe says more about those who play games on Twitter than it does anything else. But we do see this on a variety of issues, including the abortion issue. My goodness, I'm I'm old enough to remember all of this debate back in the 70s. And it still seems that this ends up on the plate of the conservatives from a heaping helping deliver, delivered from the, the, the liberals. I mean, this is stuff that was settled decades ago. Um, how do they get ahead of this? How do they paint their own picture? Well, they, they, they showcase, they need to showcase, um, you know, the new leaders in the conservative party who have no truck nor trade for this i mean o'toole's been pretty clear on all of this but uh look um she got a nice profile piece this weekend melissa lanceman uh the candidate the conservative candidate replacing peter kent there in in thornhill i mean melissa's the kind of candidate the conservatives want to showcase in in her urban areas she's she's a successful gay same-sex married woman who is very progressive in her own social life and in her views you know melissa she's not going to have any time for all of this nonsense conservatives need to bring people like melissa and and others to the forefront uh you know raquel doncho uh well uh well skilled uh younger female millennial leader in the conservative party if if these women from different backgrounds from different parts of the country are joining the conservatives all the liberal branding about it can't be accurate. I mean, that said, Scott, I will say in polling, you do still see a female voters struggle with uh, some classes of female voters, cohorts of female voters struggle with voting for for conservatives because in large measure, a lot of this branding still works with the liberals do. Um, again, uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Bill Davis days in Ontario, for example, and the talk of the big blue machine and its marketing and advertising ability. I remember going to school with a kid whose father was involved in that and, and, and talking about that. Where has that gone? It seems that they've gone from being very much in control of the message to, you know, just a fringe party that's all over the place. Yeah, well, I think it's no no sense spending any money right now, right? I mean, this is where the pandemic has its impact. I think the conservatives will try and use the opportunity that maybe a 
people's minds starting to move off the pandemic in the summer provides to tell that story. That's that's part of the politics here at play, too. Trudeau doesn't want to give the conservatives a moment to get their feet. Uh, he doesn't want them to spend all the money they have on trying to brand uh, Aaron O'Toole as a winning candidate. So this leads us back to where we were a few minutes ago in this conversation. Um, some stories this weekend uh, that came out, uh, which are accurate, you know, the conservatives have engaged some of uh, Boris Johnson's, uh, the British Prime Minister's yeah. uh, communication staff, and what Johnson has done very well in Britain is sort of co-op Middle England, which will mean something to you and many of the listeners. That had been Labour territory, then that went back to the Brits, then Labour got it back again, and they become the party of working class voters. And you'll know that, at least in a marketing perspective, and you'll know that's something O'Toole in his messages that we've heard is trying to achieve as well. What about Jugmeet uh, Singh, leader of the NDP? How, as we do move uh, closer to uh, the election that we're not going to hold during a pandemic, what does he have to do to stop the Liberals from eating his lunch? Well, he's, he, he, he's kind of the, the cool, cool hand. I won't call him cool hand Luke, but he's cool hand Jagmeet at the moment. He's yeah, he's and you know that's like, interesting. You say, it's interesting you see that Tim because we remember during the days of Justin Trudeau and Stephen Harper. Uh, you know, it was it was Trudeau that was the cool kid. Not necessarily the case now, is it? With with Jagmeet no, Singh, he not, seems yeah, to have generated. But, yeah, and, and Singh is kind of taking a page, um, Scott, out of the Jack Layton model, right? Like, I'm not in a rush here to have an election. I have some influence here. I can, you know, the longer it's a minority parliament, I can push the liberals on uh, issues um, that are important to me, like paid sick day, like uh, a, a living wage for people, like equity, diversity. Um, and he, he's, he's using the spotlight in hopes that at some point he gets a, a latent, like, push forward, but he's not going to get it from the right. I mean, O'Toole seemingly shows he's uh, still 28 to 30% of Canadians, pretty solid on the Conservatives, but maybe he's hoping, as Mr. Layton did, if the Liberal fortunes start to wane, that he picks up a little bit on that, because Mr. Singh's personal numbers are very good. He... He arguably comes across as the most authentic of the national party leaders. Um, I keep Mr. Blanchett out of that, who I do find authentic, too, because he's a separatist party leader. But for Singh, he kind of wants this to, the string to play out, and he wants to be the conscience, and he wants another minority. I think you bring up a very valid point here, and it's something that I've thought about, but probably more on the provincial level. Uh, Jagmeet Singh is certainly holding people to account, but he's not coming across like a whiny opposition person who's just screaming the exact opposite of what the liberals are. And I think that's working for him. And I've often thought this uh, in Ontario with provincial politics. If I was in the opposition right now, or I was a opposition leader... I'd be lying relatively low, simply because we know you're not going to get any attention anyway. And also, people love it when they see people working together, not scrapping with each other. And now we're seeing both the the uh, provincial uh, liberal leader and the provincial uh, NDP leader for, for quite a few months now, just hammering and hammering and hammering at uh, the provincial government about how they're handling things. I think if I was the leader of the opposition at this point, I would try to be seen as just a nice guy 
who's offering support with the odd little idea like Jugmeet Singh has brought in through the back door and then trying to be like, can I help you anyway? Can I do anything? Because you're not going to get anything on policy or any popularity. So why not work on simply building your image instead of the noisy uh, politician on the other side of the aisle who's just screaming and yelling at a time when no one wants to hear it? We've all had enough. Shouldn't these opposition leaders be joining, uh, working on their own image as opposed to criticizing it? this point yeah yeah I, for, most certainly they they should I'd, I'd add to your point too we're living in a a moment of hyper whinging right because we're I mean, listen you need people to whinge it keeps your radio show going and people do mm. want to want to hear whinging but when you you're on a podcast every in every form of our lives right now people are frustrated and they're complaining and they're upset so when you go against the grain a little bit as Jagmeet Singh as you argue Jagmeet Singh is Jagmeet Singh is that can be a potential benefit because remember hey he held his head in all of this he tried to be constructive he stood out because he wasn't doing everything everybody else was that's not to say he's not offering criticism he is mm-hmm. but it's the manner in which he does it I agree with you 100%, and I think opposition is really missing an opportunity here, which they wouldn't have had normally, simply because the leader, uh, no matter what level, gets all of the priority during a pandemic. But I think this is a real missed opportunity for the opposition to work on character as opposed to policy. Yeah, and, and again, to be fair to them, they've been blocked out by the pandemic, right? I mean, yeah. everything, every news, every news station, every commentary, the first two or three stories, uh, even the George G. Yesterday being the anniversary of George Floyd's death, it was, you know, it still comes behind all the other stories uh, that are all about our case rates, our reopening and, and everything else. So it's hard when you're the opposition leader. And if you're complaining, join the, join the club. Everybody's complaining, yeah. but you're not yeah. doing anything unique. Good point. Tim Powers with us, uh, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you got no heart of glass, my friend. Your heart pumps blood. Tell that to your family, will you? <laughs> Wait, slow down. Let me write that down. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Tim. The long and painful lockdown that we're in now, uh, as a result of this third wave, is absolutely because Doug Ford uh, made the wrong choices. He walked us right into this third wave with his eyes wide open and uh, his pandemic choices have really hurt the local small businesses uh, all across the province. Uh, that is uh, NDP, provincial NDP leader Andrea Horbath. And with all due respect, that is the biggest pile of crap I have ever heard in my life. And we've tried to get Andrea on the air, but uh, does not want to come on with us. But uh, can you name me a province that has not had to deal with a third wave? Is there a province out there that has not had to deal with a third wave? Uh, New Brunswick having issues just prior to the long weekend. Uh, we know what's going on in Manitoba. Like, who has who not dealt with a third wave? British Columbia, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who everyone loves, just announced they were releasing their emergency break, which has been on since the Easter holidays, and, out, uh, and laying out their reopening plan, much like the other provinces have done. They're all in the same position. So how Andrea Horvath or anyone can sit and say that some have done it better than others, the only ones that I think have done it better are perhaps the island maritime provinces where they've, they stopped travel and they sealed everything off in their own little bubble because there's a dozen people living there. 
but everyone else has been in lockdown in some form, right the way across the, the country to British Columbia. So I'm not sure what planet the NDP is on or what the leader is talking about here, but I don't know a province that has not had to deal with a third wave. And let's all remember, everyone after the first and the second and now the third wave, open up, open up, open up. We had mayors of Halton signing a letter last summer demanding the province follow the science and open up, only to have everything shut down a week later in the wake of another wave. So for people to sit on the other side and say things that just aren't true, I don't get it. You name me a province that hasn't had to deal with a third wave and a shortage of supply up until the beginning of this month. That's why we're in a third wave, Andrea Horvath. The lack of supply until the month of May. We're starting to see now vaccinations increase. Now, as a result of more supply coming in. That is what's responsible for the third wave across Canada. The lack of vaccination supply. We're starting to see that change now because supply is coming in and we're seeing the results of that, much like when we vaccinated those in long-term care. So, again, this to me does no one any good and just adds to the confusion and adds, you know, to the greasy politics behind all of this. It's, it's terrible. Name me a province that hasn't had a third wave. Again, BC just talking now about releasing their emergency break and setting out guidelines to reopen, just as Ontario has. So, again, I don't know. Uh, as I said to Tim Powers, I think the best thing for opposition leaders to do right now is just to back off because no one's listening to them and work on their own image. Stand there, show shots of you lifting sandbags, you know, shoveling something, helping out, as opposed to nee, 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 because everyone's in the same boat all across the country. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'd work on the image right now because the leaders have all of the attention right now. We're in a global pandemic, but that doesn't stop a lot from hiding behind a hedge and lopping ro uh, lobbing rocks over to the other side because that's all we seem to be doing. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. In my never-ending quest to talk about anything other than COVID-19, I came across a story out of Florida where they have altered girls' photos in their high school yearbook to hide their chests and any other elements deemed immodest. Their words. Seriously, they have photoshopped out anything they feel is inappropriate. The problem is, whose responsibility is it to decide that? In these cases, it was any neckline that showed any hint of a young person's natural curves. It's not like they were Kardashian shots with pouty lips and revealing cleavage. Not even close. Most kids, male and female, at this age feel awkward enough trying to fit in without the fashion police drawing attention to their changing bodies while altering their school photos taken at school by a school photographer. 
So much for personal rights, freedom, and expression in the good old United States of America. A land known for that? I guess only when it fits your personal agenda. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's uh, move on and uh, talk about student employment. Remember, this was a big deal last year. A great example, my daughter couldn't work all last summer during uh, her summer holiday and such. And are we setting out to have another summer for the kids? Let's bring in Brendan Bernard, senior economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab. Uh, Students still facing another tough job, uh, another summer job uh, market, another tough situation this year. Brendan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. So how do you compare this summer to last summer, Brendan, when it comes to student employment? Well, it's definitely better than last summer, uh, but it's not back to normal. Uh, we, we track uh, uh, job postings on Indeed, and overall, the situation is actually looking pretty good. But when we drill into the specific summer job market, things are a bit tepid. And specifically from uh, Ontario's point of view, um, we've got areas of the economy that are big summer employers where there's still a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty about the pandemic, uncertainty about what policies are going to be in place at the time. And so employers looking to hire uh, camp counselors or um, uh, jobs in the food service industry, for instance, are still uh, on the sideline, I think, waiting for some clarity. Uh, it seems that, Brendan, things are looking better, but it's more of a gradual start than, you know, come May or June, boom, they start working. This is it, 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 because things are slowly starting to open up. It seems like it'll be a gradual thing. I, I think so, though it might not be so gradual once they, once we actually get to those moments of things mm. opening up. Uh, so thinking of retail, for instance, we've got non-essential retail uh, not having in-store shoppers. Um, we, we, once we start uh, uh, relaxing some of those restrictions, I think we've seen in job numbers uh, er- earlier this year and last summer that uh, it, so some of these areas of the economy like retail and uh, food services can bounce back pretty quickly. The question really is, well, twofold. One is that, you know, there might be a bounce back, but is, is it going to be enough to make up all the losses? And then the second one is for the summer job market, what's the timing going to be? Um, we, we could have a situation where uh, there are only, you know, maybe six weeks of full summer work for uh, students who, who might be going back to school in the fall. And that's just not uh, a normal circumstance. What about compensation for students like there was last summer? Um, so, so there we see uh, it, right now it doesn't look like the government is um, going to roll out at least uh, the same type of program like uh, the uh, student um, emergency benefit uh, that was offered last summer. Um, y- younger Canadians are uh, um, definitely uh, uh, being able to access things like EI, which uh, eligibility requirements um, were relaxed, and to, to in part to help uh, y- younger workers um, access those programs. But those programs are designed for people who are laid off. For students just enter, switching gears and entering the job market now, they, uh, those, they're not really the main targets of those programs. And so then uh, when it comes to looking for work, it really depends on the area of the economy uh, you're, you're trying to f- find options in. Um, if we're talking areas like 
um, construction or uh, outdoor maintenance, things like that, those types of summer jobs. I think uh, the, the situation, I think, should be okay. We see job postings in areas like construction and warehousing and things like that quite strong right now. Um, but in those service areas, uh, hospitality and tourism, food service, um, things are pretty weak, and uh, it's understandably so. I mean, I, I, there, there's not much activity um, going, in the, uh, going on in those areas, at least compared to uh, uh, typical years. And, and that's probably going to be the case as long as the pandemic is with us. Um, obviously, it is what it is right now, and slowly things will start to open up. Are you concerned about the ability to get workers or hire quickly? And come September, when the students go back to school, are you could you see a shortage of workers simply because now they're back to school and things are opening up quite rapidly? Uh, well, you know, uh, it's, it's a long way to look at uh, through, through, through to September, but I definitely just already now see that in pocket in certain pockets of the economy uh, that aren't as impacted by the pandemic, that demand for workers hiring appetite is pretty strong. So like I mentioned earlier, construction, loading and stocking, like our warehouse jobs, uh, those are in high demand. But we've got other areas of the economy too. Um, tech booming right now in terms of job postings. Healthcare looks really strong. And then a whole range of areas from management to accounting to marketing, uh, not quite as strong as those standout sectors, but overall job postings are up from their pre-pandemic levels. So I think this is a good sign for the overall job market. Um, as, because, because even outside of uh, younger Canadians, conditions aren't fully back to normal. Uh, but um, but I, I think th- this will be an added boost to hopefully get things um, where, where we want them to go, get a labor market that's more similar to what, uh, what was um, prevailing in 2019 when we had unemployment uh, near multi-decade lows. But we're not there yet. And, um, and so hopefully... Uh, as the pandemic eventually uh, ebbs and the vaccine rollout continues, that the areas of the economy that have been really struggling are able to start building back. What about post-pandemic, Brendan? Uh, obviously, hospitality, construction, retail at a minimum, which are big summer uh, producers for students. Does this change the template moving forward on what summer employment will be for students? Well, is there other really, other opportunities that have come out of this? It, it's really going to depend job to job. I think in some areas, um, things are probably going to look more similar to how they did pre-pandemic um, than uh, than the situation we've been in in the past year. I mean, as long as people want to go to summer camp, how much is that really going to change? Uh, now, mm. it, it, that might depend on like the on the. Uh, what what parents are deciding and things like that, but but overall that that business model um, I, I think is you know a, a tried and true formula. More the, the bigger questions though um, are in areas where uh, where the pandemic has potentially caused larger changes. And so a few stand out. Um, one is retail. Uh, e-commerce has has, has surged dur- during during the pandemic, and I think some of that is probably going to fall back once. Uh, especially once uh, uh, in-store shopping in many areas um, resumes, but it might not go back to its baseline. And so that, that means that uh, employment in retail could be uh, 
um, structurally changed once we're on the other end of this. Um, another area where I think um, the longer term outlook is pretty cloudy uh, is in uh, travel and accommodation. And part of that is on the tourism side. But I think um, a, a big area, uh, area where we really don't know is on the business travel side. Um, all those daily flights from Toronto to Montreal and back, uh, you know, mm. Wednesday at 8 a.m., those aren't tourists really take, taking those flights. Those, those are people uh, in the business world. And with the expansion of Zoom and, and, uh, and teleconferencing and all, all, all these various things that people have been using to work from home during the pandemic, um, how, how that ships back um, once, once things relax. I think it, there will be some ship back to uh, pre-pandemic um, operations, but uh, it's not clear that it's going to go all the way back. And so then all the jobs that are tied up in those types of areas of the economy, facilitating those, those types of um, uh, operations, uh, I, I, that, that's a real uh, question mark um, for how we come out of this. Mm, fascinating. Brendan Bernard with a senior economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab. Uh, not back to normal yet for students looking for another summer job in another tough uh, COVID-19 market. Brandon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. COVID-19 changed a lot of stuff, the way, uh, the way we think about things, the way we do things. Uh, is there a part of life that it has not affected? Uh, what about where you want to live? You know, for years, we're talking about stop the urban sprawl. We're not building any more roads. We're going to stack us all up like cordwood, even though we got all this land. We're, it's like Europe. Um, no, I think people want out. They don't want to live in a 600-square-foot condo stacked up on the 40th floor in Toronto. They want some space. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has proven that. To talk more about all of this, John Lusink is with us, president of Right at Home, and he is with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. My pleasure. So you're with Right at Home Realty. What is your thought on trends and how they are changing compared to uh, comparing before pandemic and after pandemic? How is this changing what we're buying? Well, there's a a number of areas that it's um, um, impacted, uh, quite frankly. I think, first of all, um, we've all come to realize that, you know, we we can be somewhat flexible and work from our, our home offices. So, um, I think a good majority of our uh, realtor uh, clients um, have figured out that, look, I, I don't need to be in the city proper. I can move to Hamilton, Niagara, um, Dundas, y- you name it, and, you know, with good Internet connection can, can still function and do my job. So, um, And then hopefully get a backyard as opposed to strictly stick with the 645-square-foot condo. So it certainly had an impact. What about supply in Ontario, Canada, wherever? Uh, You know, we keep hearing there's short supply of housing. Are we building enough new neighborhoods? Well, you know, that that is the $50 million question. Um, You know, I would say to you, first of all, uh, that uh, if I look at our own statistics, so right at home, um, we complete about just over 20,000 transactions a year. And so look at markets from Ottawa all the way up to Barrie, over to Burlington, Hamilton. And, you know, this this month, or actually this week, um, I can see that listings are up, and they're up about 24%, um, you know, year to date. So, 
is there enough supply? There is supply, but to answer your question specifically, we're, we're not building enough. Restrictions are tight. Red tape is making it very difficult. So it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. And I think the issue is more one of supply. Um, so you've hit the nail on the head. And I think, um, you know, more needs to be done. Government needs to be a little more flexible and, and assist develop, developers in, in getting more product on the market. It seems that we're not building a lot lately. We're talking about transit a lot, and we are seeing more and more yeah. of that being built. But there's certainly no, you know, whenever you, you talk about a road, there seems to be, you know, opposition coming at it from all la- uh, angles. It, it was all for the last several decades, all about stopping urban sprawl. Uh, stacking is up like uh, like cordwood, I said, uh, similar, very similar to Europe. Uh, is that is that waning? Do we realize it doesn't have to be one extreme or the other? Well, I think I think there is some movement, um, you know, away from the stacking, and you know, but but a big part of that um, uh, formula, of course, is what developers have to pay in in development fees, improvement fees, taxes, uh, you know, and and so you know that's certainly uh, part and parcel of the discussion. Um, if we make it a little bit more. Um, not just affordable, but if we make the process uh, a little shorter and, and allow these um, developers to get their developments on the market, um, you know, maybe within two years instead of four, we, we might see a bit of, um, you know, uh, relaxation in, in, the, in, the, in the crunch, you know, and, and um, have a little more product available. Well, we're talking about how Canada needs to grow. We have to continue bringing uh, lots of Im- uh, immigrants in from other parts of the world to make up for our uh, slowly, well, stagnant population. We'll leave it at that. So we're, we're looking for more Canadians to come here, but we're, it seems that we're not building the infrastructure for them. Is, is building a bad word here? I, d- I don't think so. Look, uh, you know, the ultimate dream for, for most people um, is is to you know own a home and and it's the the pride and the the joy and the, and the dream to you know uh, be able to invest in and own your home. Um, I have four adult children who uh, I've been saying my wife and I've been discussing you know how challenging uh, it is for them to find uh, a home to invest in and let alone whether they ever will and so. You know, I, I don't think it's a bad word, but I, I think we need to uh, find a way to make it um, actually doable, accessible. And home ownership, really, is the easiest way to develop one's own personal wealth. We all know that. What are, right. what are buyers looking for now, post-pandemic? Well, that, that is the um, uh, ultimate question, I think, uh, uh, you know, as far as post-pandemic. So... You know, certainly they're looking for proximity to open space. I mean, our recent survey um, showed that 45% uh, percent of respondents, you know, wanted proximity to open space and nature. Um, mm. You know, that to them was sort of most important. Um, and then another significant group uh, were looking for more space. Um, you know, back to your comment about the, the <laughs> mini condo. I mean, they're... They're now saying, geez, if I'm going to work from home and if I'm going to, you know, be, um, you know, hold up in, in my home, I'd, I'd like more space and I'd like to be able to walk outside and enjoy some fresh air. So I think those are, are two things that are, are really significant. 
John Lucing with us, president of Right at Home Realty, talking about how our uh, buying habits are changing coming out of a global pandemic. John, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Same to you. All right, let's move on and talk about, uh, we've been talking about how uh, things have shifted during this COVID-19 pandemic and what it will be like going out the other end of this. What about grocery stores? Grocery work shifting amid increasing automation and online sales. Uh, we remember even uh, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, some people were actually boycotting stores that got rid of cashiers and, and put in automation. Now it seems to be the go-to system as well as a lot of us ordering online. Let's bring in Kimberly Bowman, Senior Projects Manager at the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, Ryerson University, and with us now. Kimberly, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, yeah. No, thanks so much. Doing well here. Uh, we've certainly seen technology and how it is uh, slowly uh, innovating business as as we move forward, as we progress. Sometimes there's slowdowns as a result of society. We've seen with COVID nineteen, technology finally catch or sorry, people finally catch up with technology. How will this change the grocery store moving forward? Considering when uh, automated tellers first uh, cashiers first came out, uh, there was some backlash there. But how have our attitudes changed moving forward? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, as, as Canadians, we were probably a little bit slow relative to other countries in our adoption of some of the, the e-commerce technology that, that we're all so familiar with now, um, you know, thanks to the pandemic. We we saw things like self-checkouts before COVID-19 hit. Um, but, you know, those were often, the, the implementation was fairly slow. We heard from employers and industry actors that, you know, often there were constraints like, you know, how much space you've got in a store to put in a bunch of those of those new units. But, um, you know, as, as everybody knows, last year around March when, when COVID really ramped up and we were all quite concerned um, about, you know, where was this virus and how did you catch it? Um, you know, grocery workers were still going to work. Many people weren't. And uh, many of us changed our shopping habits. Um, from lots of little frequent micro trips, really small small shops frequently, maybe on the way home from work, um, to a lot more um, online purchasing behavior. So we saw not just the introduction of um, of uh, you know physical pills that you could shop out yourself, but a lot of people moved online and were doing click and collect or were doing grocery delivery. So um, I think in Canada we saw some of our major grocers making investments in this area um, in you know before the pandemic. But um, my goodness, you know, COVID nineteen has really has really shifted things into um, into a whole other gear, and uh, so we're seeing a, an acceleration and a trend that was already happening around around e commerce and a change in how we how we buy or how we pay for our groceries. Has that initial backlash then has, has that waned somewhat? Uh, uh, waned somewhat as we've seen the new reality that we're living in? Uh, and I guess it's job loss that has most concern. But I'm hearing from other officials that you know it, it creates other jobs in other areas. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know we um, we didn't look at um, at people's opinions and attitudes towards uh, self checkout machines. We, you know, in, in the project that I looked at, uh, that I worked on in Ontario, we, we did research with grocery workers and industry actors over the last year. Um, we didn't see strong evidence that, you know, many jobs are disappearing. If In fact, there's a lot of hiring happening or has been a lot of hiring, ha- hiring happening at grocery stores. What we do see is a shift in the type of work that is expected, um, maybe in the uh, the activities that a grocery worker would have on, on their day, to, you know, during their day-to-day shift. And in some cases, growth, and as you say, in other jobs. So, um, you know, maybe fewer fewer people in the stores, um, but more people 
in um, you know, what they call dark stores, in distribution centers or in warehouses, mm-hmm. preparing the orders or carrying them out to your car. Um, so we're not we're not really clear that there is a um, a you know a disappearance of jobs, but there is almost certainly a shift in the expectations um, of different workers. Um, maybe a growth in some in demand for some other jobs and some other skills. Um, and you know what we're hearing from from employers is that you know, customer service was very important before the, the pandemic and is going to remain very important after the pandemic. So that is something that uh, it's hard to find in people, never mind in in self checkouts. We've certainly talked about how much companies have had to pivot during the middle of all of this. Uh, some businesses have seen changes in regulations and, and restrictions that allow them to be a little bit more open. How much of what the grocery stores are going through now will stick coming out the other end? Oh, that's a really good question. I, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball. It would have helped me a lot of the last you know, year and a half. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that question. Um, we, we don't know what this pandemic is going to bring us, and we don't know what our behaviors are going to be after the pandemic ends. Um, you know, the project that we that we worked on looked at the food retail sector in Canada. We were planning it before COVID, and you know, we had to pivot quite a bit in how we how we did the work um, as as we were conducting research with people who who were going through some pretty pretty challenging times. Um, I think an important thing for us to remember uh, is that as consumers. Uh, we, we do have some, you know, we have some, some power here in, in deciding about, you know, how we get our groceries, where we, where we shop and, um, you know, how we, how we choose to, to, um, interact with different services. So I think, um, you know, we don't know what the entire sector is going to look like. I think on an individual basis, we can think about, um, where we want to shop and, uh, if, if we want that customer service from a, um, a more premium brand or, sorry about that. Uh, or if, if we're happy with the online services, which, you know, do have people on the other end, but doing different jobs and using different skills. How important is it uh, for um, to stores, retail, whether it's grocery or not, to make sure customers feel safe? How, uh, how, how big is safety a factor now? I think safety is a huge factor. We heard from, from large employers and store managers that that is, you know, something that they have made major investments in since the start of the pandemic, uh, whether it's around, you know, equipment, plexiglass, staff training. We also heard from grocery workers themselves that, um, you know, the clerk and the cashier who's in there, they, they care a lot about their own safety. They, they're also mm-hmm. there thinking about how to do small things to help keep that as safe as an environment as possible. So where do I stock these paper towels so I don't end up with people having to double back um, and make an extra trip against the flow? Uh, or how, how can I make sure that these, you know, this cart cleaning works really well when the system in place could work or, or might not? So I think safety has been a huge, a huge factor, um, both for, you know, the folks who are setting the policies and making the investments, but certainly we heard it from, you know, the, the frontline grocery workers that it's something that they think about constantly and are trying to think about how they can do their part to keep them themselves and their colleagues, but also their customers safe. Another fascinating angle here. And obviously uh, the dust, ha- uh, the dust has not settled yet. And, and what this is going to look like uh, coming out the other side, Kimberly Bowman with a senior projects manager at the Brookfield Institute for innovation and entrepreneurship with Ryerson university. Kimberly, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. Have a good afternoon. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us. 
until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.